Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your dreams. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this space edition, I talk with space lawyer Stephen Freeland about sneaky satellite launches. But first up, here's the news about exploring the sun. NASA is sending a probe to the sun, travelling 140 million kilometres from Earth. The Parker Solar Probe will explore the sun's atmosphere, the corona, enduring temperatures over 1400 degrees Celsius, impacts by supersonic particles and powerful radiation. The sun's atmosphere reaches up to 7 million kilometres from its surface. The probe has been built by the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab and will be launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida. The probe will explore the mysteries of why the sun's atmosphere is hotter than its surface and why the solar wind speeds up. The Parker Solar Probe is the size of a small car. It will travel at 720,000 kilometers per hour around the sun and has cost $1.5 billion to build. The Parker Solar Probe will fly around the Sun and fly by Venus seven times over nearly seven years to gradually reduce its orbit around the Sun, edging closer to its closest approach of 6.2 million kilometres in 2024. This is the opposite of a slingshot orbit around a planet that some space probes use to speed up to get away from the Sun. The Solar Probe will orbit the Sun a total of 24 times for the mission. Scientists hope to learn how energy flows in the sun and how the sun's plasma and magnetic fields interact, which will help them predict solar storms that can cripple satellites and disrupt power grids, and tell them more about how stars work. Solar probes are out of radio contact every time they go around the far side of the sun, so researchers are relying on the probe's autonomous programming to make the right choices, and will be holding their breath until it makes contact again each of the 24 times it goes around. A carbon composite foam heat shield protects the instruments. The probe's instruments will measure electric and magnetic fields, plasma in the solar wind, and high-energy particles that are associated with shocks and solar flares. A white light imager will analyse the solar wind in front of the spacecraft, so scientists can see what the other instruments are about to detect. The Parker Solar Probe is named after astrophysicist Eugene Parker, who predicted high-speed solar wind. NASA are offering to send a memory card on the probe with the names of any member of the public who registers on the NASA Parker Solar Probe website. go.nasa.gov slash hot ticket. The Parker Solar Probe will launch on July 31st, 2018. (laughs) 
You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Sneaky Space Bees Mark Harris reported in the IEEE Spectrum that Silicon Valley startup company Swarm Technologies has sent four unusually small cube satellites into space from a launch site in India this year after being refused permission last year by the American Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, due to safety concerns. Swarm Technologies specialise in swarming applications for Internet of Things network devices at a hundredth of the current price. They have funding from the National Science Foundation and strong connections to NASA and the US military. If this was their first venture into space, it may also be their last. In April 2017, they applied to the FCC for permission to send four Space B satellites into orbit. The Space B satellites measure 10 centimetres wide by 10 centimetres long by 2.8 centimetres high just over a quarter of the height of a standard 1U 10cm CubeSat. Sort of like thick, short smartphones. This means they could cram four space bees into the space allocated for a single CubeSat and save money on launch fees. The plan for the space bees was to spring apart after launch to go into different orbits. Remote area Internet of Things devices would collect their data and broadcast it to a solar-powered remote gateway. This would upload the data to the Space Bee. The Space Bee would send down the data when it was over the next gateway connected to the internet, where it could be relayed to users. In November 2017, four little Space Bee satellites were delivered to the Spaceflight Company in Seattle, who in turn delivered them to the Antrix commercial space arm of the Indian Space Agency, ISRO. The problem was that the space bees were so small that they would be hard to track, and so hard to stop being hit by other spacecraft. To counter this, Swarm Technologies installed GPS and also a passive radar reflector. The Federal Communications Commission found that those weren't good enough to counter how hard space bees are to track, so they dismissed the application in December 2017 after they'd been waiting in India. On January 8, 2018, Swarm Technologies applied to launch four regulation 10cm cubed 1U CubeSats from New Zealand in April 2018. The FCC approved the mission. Swarm Technologies also applied to the FCC for permission to install two more downlink ground stations and up to 500 uplink gateways around the United States. This licence was also approved. A mere four days later, on January 12, 2018, a polar satellite launch vehicle launched from the east coast of India with several payloads from different companies, apparently including the four space bees from Swarm Technologies. The Indian Space Agency ISRO described part of the payload as four two-way satellite communications and data relay devices from the United States. ISRO publicly noted that they had successfully reached orbit. On the same day, Swarm Technologies CEO Sara Spangalo posted photos to Facebook of a celebration party with the Swarm team, 
showing a champagne bottle with the words Swarm Successful First Launch written on the label. This may be the first unauthorised satellite launch in the world. It looks like commercial space launch businesses have been working on an honour system, where they assume that nobody would buy a launch for their payload unless they had the necessary licences, so they never asked to see them. That time may be over. The space bees would stay in orbit for eight years before deorbiting and burning up in the atmosphere. Fast forward to March 2018, and these two applications by Swarm Technologies have been halted, while the Federal Communications Commission investigates whether the company has launched satellites without permission. The FCC believes they have launched and are operating the small Space B satellites. Despite the FCC ban, on March 15th, Swarm was awarded an additional $740,000 by the National Science Foundation to continue its scientific experiments. Rocket Lab in New Zealand say they will only launch payloads that have the proper licences, which means Swarm can't sneak another payload into orbit. Swarm Technologies would forfeit the Rocket Lab launch fee if the FCC don't restore their licence. This would be a big loss for a little startup company. Why did they do it? Any chance it was a mistake? It's going to be hard for anyone to be persuaded it was a mistake when they held a party. Did they think the Federal Communications Commission wouldn't notice? Or that they could talk their way out of it and prove that the space bees were safe? There's a real danger that the Federal Communications Commission will want to make an example of them so that other startups don't try to stick by the slogan, move fast and break things. The Indian Space Agency, ISRO, says it will now be much stricter in requiring American companies to show their paperwork before launching. Leo Labs, a commercial satellite tracking company, says their automated system was able to acquire and track the space bees straight away and they spot them once or twice each day. This is enough information to plot their orbits so that other spacecraft can avoid colliding with the space bees. Amateur satellite watchers have so far been unable to pick up any signals from the space bees, which suggests that swarm technologies are not operating or testing the little satellites. Perhaps swarm technologies can persuade the Federal Communications Commission that the space bees can be tracked, and negotiate a smaller punishment, like a fine. If swarm technologies are found to have defied the ban, then the FCC could go as far as to revoke swarm technologies' licence to even apply to operate in space. Sometimes it's better to seek permission than beg forgiveness. I know a space lawyer. Stephen Freeland is Dean of the School of Law at Western Sydney University and is an expert on international space law. I spoke to Stephen by Skype. I began by asking him, would this swarm technologies launch from India potentially just break American law, or would it also be illegal internationally? Let me start off by saying that I, I'm not an expert on US domestic law, mm. but if we were to in a sense, analogise this under Australian law. So let's assume that uh, an Australian company had sought permission under the Australian legislation 
for a license to have its satellites launched from overseas, let's say from India, and that the company did not obtain the requisite licenses and yet the launch went ahead, I could certainly comment on that. And in that situation, so under the Australian law, and as I said, the American law might be different, although I suspect the same principles would apply. If that were to happen, if, if an Australian company were to, to operate in that way uh, without the requisite licenses, the Australian legislation, which is known as the Space Activities Act, would deem that to be an offence under the Act, that is, undertaking an activity with a space activity without the requisite licenses. And under the Space Activities Act, under the Australian legislation, there are sanctions that may be fines, that might even be, depending on the circumstances, criminal sanctions as well. But we don't really need to go into the details. So the fact is that it's a question of domestic law, first and foremost, as to whether uh, an organisation within the jurisdiction of a particular country acts in conformity with that country's domestic law. And at least the allegations raised in the article suggest that this company may have been in breach of American law. So that's an issue for American law, but it's got other consequences as well, because whether or not the company acts in accordance with American law, under the international legal regime governing space activities, if an American company, or if I again analogise if this were an Australian company, undertakes a space activity and things potentially go wrong in space and there is a collision causing damage, then under the international regime, which the United States and Australia and essentially all of those countries that have space capability at the moment. They're all parties to a particular treaty, which is called the Liability Convention. And under that regime, if something were to go wrong, then potentially the liability lies with the country itself, irrespective of whether the activity had the requisite license or not. So even though at, at the micro level, the legality depends upon US law as to the relationship between the United States government and the particular company. The fact that the US company undertook space activities leads to a potential, and it's only potential because uh, not, there's no liability until there's damage, that leads to a potential liability under this international regime for the United States. And that's something that Everybody needs to understand that there is this international regime governing space activities, and therefore it's important for countries to, one, have domestic space law so that they can regulate those within their jurisdiction, and two, have domestic space law which can be enforced in some way so as to discourage people from doing what is alleged here, i.e. acting without the requisite licences. Well, this is an interesting thing because it was launched from another country, from India. Yeah. And Correct. the objection that the FCC had was that they thought there was a really huge danger of collision because it's so hard to detect because they're unusually small satellites. I mean, the fact that it was launched from another country does not 
in any way lessen the potential for liability. Uh, again, if I can analogize uh, under the Australian legislation, where I am comfortable talking about, one of the, the Australian legislation has a series of different licenses that you would apply for depending on what you're doing. And one of those licenses under the Australian legislation and the one that's been used most frequently is when an Australian company has one of its satellites launched from overseas. So Optus and NBN, for example, and then the recent QB50 uh, launches. These were Australian you know, satellites owned by Australian companies that were launched from overseas. Um, so the license requirement still applies. And the fact that it was launched from overseas doesn't in any way lessen Australia's potential liability. It also means that under this international regime, the state from where it is launched is also liable because it, it, the liability under this regime is can be for more than one country. But it still means that Australia, in my case, or in the situation you're talking about in the article, America is still potentially liable. So the fact that it was launched from India is, in a sense, does not change that. It means that India itself may also be liable under this regime. Now, the other, the other point to be made is the potentiality for collision. Of course, every year we send up many, many satellites. And of course, space is becoming more and more congested in various different orbits. And therefore, the potential for collision, or as space technicians like to call it, conjunctions, uh, increases. It will depend, of course, on where these particular satellites were launched into, uh, what orbit, how long they'll be in orbit. If they're in relatively low Earth orbit and they're relatively small, then by the law of physics, it may well be that they will deorbit relatively quickly and burn up in the atmosphere, which, of course means that, you know, once that happens, there is no possibility of a conjunction taking place. So everything will depend on the detail, where they are, and we don't have any details of exactly where they are in space because typically in the type of launch that is described in the article where you have small satellites, essentially we call it piggybacking off a large satellite launch. So there was a, a launch, there was a big satellite, and then there are a whole range of smaller satellites in there that were thrust out at the same time that the large satellite was thrust out to go into its own orbit. You don't have as much control as to exactly what orbit they go into and where they are. And so it depends on where they are as to how long they'll remain in orbit because the forces of gravity will have some effect. And if they're in really crowded orbits, then clearly the potential for a collision increases. And if they're in relatively uncrowded orbits, then, of course, conversely, the potential for collision is, is less, but it still exists to a certain degree. So everything will depend on the factual circumstances as to the actual risk. But under the liability regime, as I say, there is the potential liability. If I could just add one more thing, under this liability regime, as I said, there is the potential for liability. The fact remains that only once in the history of this, of this treaty, and this treaty came about in 1972, only once has one country invoked 
the liability convention, the treaty, in the potential for a claim against another country. And that happened as long ago as in 1978, when an old small spy satellite, essentially, Soviet spy satellite crashed into the Northwest Territories of Canada. And when Canada invoked this and made a, a statement of claim against the Soviet Union, it actually mentioned the Liability Convention. And that particular episode was solved by negotiation. So the Liability Convention exists, but states don't invoke it. That's not to say that they won't in the future, of course. And so states have to be very careful when they put together their regime to make sure they understand that there's always this potential for liability. And my understanding is, of course, that these little satellites being so hard to detect, even when they're active, when the batteries run out, they're very hard to detect. Even though they're small, they could do lots of damage. Absolutely. I mean, depending on the orbits that they are in, um, anything in orbit uh, can be travelling as fast as 10, 12, 15,000 kilometres per hour. Um, that's 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 kilometres per second. And so, therefore, even something that's absolutely tiny has a massive kinetic energy force. And so something as tiny as um, a paint fleck um, had caused damage to the windscreen of a space shuttle. One of the space shuttles, when they were still flying, came back and it had indentations in its windscreen. And they realised that that was caused by a paint fleck. So had that been something um, more substantial than a paint fleck, then it would have destroyed the space shuttle. So, yes, the potential for damage is very great given the kinetic energies that are involved. So that suggests that if something did go wrong, the company involved could have quite a large penalty. Not the, uh, Well, under the international regime, the country, the launching state, would be liable under the international regime. And so what typically happens, and this is the case under the Australian law, is that Australia, under the domestic framework it has, it says, okay, you want to launch from overseas, you have to apply to us for the requisite licence. So you, you do that. And as part of the conditionality for... Um, getting that approved, and it may, of course, it may be circumstances where it's not approved, but as part of the conditionality, the licensing authority in Australia, the Australian government, would say to the company that's applying, okay, if something goes wrong, we, the Commonwealth of Australia, would be potentially liable under an international regime. And that stays with us. And so, therefore, as part of the conditionality, conditionality of us granting you a license under Australian domestic law, we will require you to give us, the, the Commonwealth, some financial comfort, either perhaps by taking out insurance up to a certain amount or by some other way demonstrating that you have financial capability so that in the event that your satellite causes a collision and damage in space, it's found that the fault lies with you, or at least partially the fault lies with you. Somebody then brings a claim under us, the Commonwealth of Australia, as the launching state. 
we are potentially liable under that international regime. We don't lose that liability, but under our domestic framework, we could then turn to you and say, okay, we are liable under an international framework. We will turn to you under the conditionality that we granted the license to you under the domestic framework and say, if we're liable for X hundred million dollars, we will turn to you and say, you have to essentially indemnify us for that amount of money or up to whatever cap. And so that's the system that's been generated as countries develop their space law, their domestic space law, they realize that they have a potential at the international level, which they can't get rid of because they are a launching state. And therefore, under their domestic law, they say, okay, we need to get some financial comfort before we issue a license. So that's a fairly standard way of doing it. Professor Stephen Freeland, thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Stephen Freeland, Dean of the School of Law at Western Sydney University, talking about how international space law affects the unauthorised launch of four little space bees. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show so that I can make more episodes. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, 
you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.